0: to Acts chapter 10 as we continue our journey through the book of Acts together. If you do need a Bible to follow uh, one of the ushers there in the aisle, and they can give you a Bible to study God's Word with us as we continue in our worship in that way. Acts chapter 10, uh, this chapter kind of records actually into chapter 11 as well a synopsis of some really pivotal events that happened in the early church and uh, Acts chapter 10 is kind of an entirety of a story. I'd like to this morning look at verse 1 down through verse 33 and then finish uh, the second half of the chapter which remains there next week in our time together. Because of the length, I'm not going to read all of verses 1 through 33 on the front side of our service here. I'm just going to read from verse 1 down through verse 16 to sort of set the context. But as we do, would you stand with me out of respect for God's word as I read the scripture? Says there was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? So he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon, a tanner whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. So when he explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray. About the sixth hour, then he became very hungry and wanted to eat, but while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven opened and an object like a great sheet bound at four corners descending to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, "'Rise, Peter, kill and eat.' But Peter said, "'Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean.' And a voice spoke to him again the second time, "'What God has cleansed you must not call common.'" And this was done three times, and the object was taken up to heaven again. Father, we just humbly ask as we open the Word of God together now as an act of our continuing worship toward you, that you would just prepare us to just genuinely have, Lord, we want to have an ear to hear what your Spirit would say to this part of your church assembled today. And as we look into this part of your holy and inspired Word We ask that your same Spirit who inspired and wrote these things down for us would now be our interpreter and our instructor and would speak to us in personal ways what you would have us to hear, every intent behind why you want us to read this. May we hear it for a personal word from you this morning in our lives. Speak to us now, Lord, bless your word. You know what we're asking. And we thank you for these things expectantly in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, I'm convinced that the Lord desires to reveal his plan to us, but that also means that we as people have to be willing to be open to embrace what that plan is. And sometimes that requires faith on our end. A willingness to actually have faith and sometimes humility with that, to be open to what the plan of God actually is and may be, and not what we may like the plan of God to be if we were to have our own decision. And really, that's kind of what we see happening in our text today. We see the unfolding of God's broader plan. Uh, the unfolding of God's bigger plan for this thing we call the church. And because God operates by grace and by a higher level of wisdom than we operate in our lives, and God's not bound by human restrictions and perspectives, sometimes God's plan is to work in a way, to work in a manner that really may at times go beyond our limited human perspective. And it may stretch us in our viewpoint. It may cause us maybe even pushed out of our comfort zone of what we would prefer the plan of God to be if we were to make our own decision. And so that means that we need to be, as I said, humbly willing to exercise faith, to be open to allow God at times uh, to show us in order to be able to submit to what God may have intentions to do even if what God desires to do may not have been what we expected or what we planned or even preferred that God would do. Uh, And when God reveals these things, we have to be willing to see them and cooperate. And that was certainly true, we're going to see here in our text, regarding God's bringing of the salvation through Jesus Christ to the Gentile people. This was a difficult thing, a stretch, if you would, in Acts chapter 10, and into chapter 11, really brings a major transition now, a major shift in what we would see in the early church as the doorway of salvation by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is now officially, and I use that word officially in a broad sense, it's now officially that doorway flung open to the Gentile people to start being saved. The Gentiles now become intermingled in this early church, which began, predominantly among the jewish people up to this point the church has been predominantly jewish in its context and now the fullness of god's plan in christ is starting to unfold as we come to acts chapter 10 where now jew and gentile will now become one in christ In this thing, this mystery that was hidden from ages past, this revealed thing that God always intended for Jew and Gentile, those of all nationalities, to be joined as one spiritual family in Christ, through Christ, in this thing we call the church or spiritual family. Now, just for sake of clarity, in case it's helpful for any of you, when I say the term Gentile, a Gentile is basically a biblical reference for anyone who is non-Jewish. Uh, So it probably refers, I'm going to assume, to the majority of us in this congregation this morning. Anyone who is not of Jewish nationality, not of the people of Israel, is biblically considered a Gentile, anyone of any other ethnicity or nationality. Now remember, the Jews, we know according to the Bible, the nation of Israel, were God's chosen people from the very beginning. God sovereignly, by his own determination and choice, graciously chose uh, the, the people of Israel, the Jewish people, to be his chosen nation through which he would bring about his plans and his purposes on this earth. God revealed himself from Abraham onward to those people and worked among them, and God planned to use the Jews to then ultimately be his light and his witness unto the rest of the world. And so we see from the Old Testament scriptures that God gave to the Jewish people, the people of Israel, the law and the temple and the sacrificial system. He gave to them the priesthood and the prophets and the scriptures which they preserved and recorded and graciously passed on to us. God gave to the Jews the covenant promises, particularly the promise of the Savior and the Messiah, that the Messiah and the Christ would come through the lineage of the Jewish people. So the Messiah, who we love, our Lord Jesus Christ, is Jewish by nationality. He came as a Jew. So salvation, biblically, is of the Jews. And predominantly, it was first for the Jews. The Bible says that salvation was to the Jew first and then secondarily to the Greek. Uh, to the Gentile, to those of us who benefited as being brought into this thing that God provided. Now, unfortunately, the Jewish people throughout history, mistakenly, because of God's wonderful work among them and how much he blessed them and chose them and gave them so much, they mistakenly, unfortunately, developed sort of an improper superiority complex about themselves as if somehow, because they were God's special chosen people, they began to even wrongly think that God only loved the Jewish people and that God only wanted to work among the Jewish people, that God only wanted to save and bring to heaven uh, the Jewish people. And as a result of that, they saw everyone else who was Gentile, many of them who were idol worshipers, who didn't have the light and truth that they did, they saw them as heathen, pagan unworthy, unclean dogs that existed... And as a result of that, they treated many of them in that way. And then, of course, the downside of how the Romans, when they came in and conquered the Jews in the days of Christ and the heavy-handedness of the Gentile people, that just precipitated all the more. And the idolatry that was in flux together with Roman occupation of Israel in this time, it just caused the Jews more and more in their perspective and treatment towards the Gentile people to, to just drive a bigger wedge between them. And there was really a mutual hatred uh, that was very strong. The prejudice between those who were Jewish and Gentile, a strong social barrier in such a way that Jews did not interact with Gentile people. They would not eat with them. They would not lodge with them. They felt if they even interacted with them, they became defiled ceremonially and that a Gentile person would make them unclean before God. So a Jew would not interact or have contact with a Gentile. Now, I bring this to your attention because that's very important to understand as we begin to go through these chapters. In fact, that understanding is helpful just to grasp what goes on in the Gospels and in the book of Acts as a whole, this avoidance and barrier between Jew and Gentile as people groups. Remember, God had a plan through Jesus to save the whole world. Jesus himself said in John chapter 3, for God so loved the what? World that he gave his only begotten son. Now, the Jew would wrongly interpret that as right. God loves the Gentile world, or God loves the Jewish world, but not the Gentile world. And in their mind, it was a struggle for them to think outside of the box that God's idea and intention was not just to save the Jewish world, that God genuinely wanted to reach the whole world, that Jesus really meant it when he said, go and make disciples of all nations, But this was difficult, you have to understand, for the mind of a Jewish Orthodox person, the idea that Jews and Gentiles, worse than that, would be brought together in a spiritual family, in this thing we now know as the church, and live in harmony with one another, and be considered one and unified as a spiritual family, that was not only mind-blowing, that was actually like offensive to a Jew. It was actually hard for them to swallow this, it violated all their preconceived spiritual and religious ideas it calls them to struggle that this could actually be god's plan but yet it was and this is what the lord begins to reveal now and even the old testament would clarify if they would look at it more closely that that really was what god's intention was ultimately but it becomes more increasingly clear so chapter 10 now records salvation through christ and we'll see the outpouring of the holy spirit officially coming to the gentiles it's almost like this is the pentecost experience for the gentile people now like we saw what happened in acts chapter 2 when the spirit was poured out upon the early days of the predominantly jewish church the door swings wide open now to the gentile people who now experience full inclusion in the things of Christ, in the gospel, in the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and the Lord is revealing to people his bigger plan. He's going to use a very Jewish man, the apostle Peter, of all people, purposely to bring this announcement and plan to them, purposely to this Roman man who was seeking God. So the Lord now is revealing his bigger plan, but it's going to take faith and humility. be willing to embrace this so again last time we left off in chapter 9 for sake of context in verse 43 where Peter had been ministering in Joppa a great miracle of the Lord happened and then many people were getting saved there in Joppa and verse 43 of chapter 9 says so it was that Peter then stayed many days in Joppa take notice of this with Simon a tanner now That is very unusual. To us, it should be unusual because keep in mind, a tanner is not someone who puts on sunscreen and goes and lays out on the beach here at the shore. A tanner is a word to describe someone who dealt with animal skins, dead animals, and basically took animal skins and and through a process converted them into things like leather-type materials. So a tanner was always dealing with the carcasses of dead animals. A tanner was constantly in contact with the dead. Now, for a Jewish person, again, according to Old Testament law, anyone who had contact with dead things was considered ceremonially unclean. They could not approach the temple. They had certain requirements. And so that being said, typically a good Orthodox Jew would not spend time or certainly would not lodge at the house of someone who was a tanner, someone who was in touch with the dead because they would think that's going to make me ceremonially unclean and not right with God. Yet Peter, notice, is lodging with this man now in Joppa. And perhaps it's just the beginning of an indication he's beginning to understand the realities of grace that he's found through the Lord Jesus Christ. And perhaps Peter, though Jewish by nationality, and if you would complete a Jew who came to know Jesus as Messiah, Peter likely understands that Christ has set them free from the demands and requirements of the regulations of the law, and that life is about grace through Christ. And perhaps what we see here is this revealing to us how the Lord is gradually preparing Peter for changes and being open to the grace of God, and perhaps he's doing it gradually in Peter's life, as already we see Peter here doing something a little bit out of the ordinary. But again, I look at this and it reminds me that sometimes the Lord, he does kind of gradually bring change into our hearts and lives. Sometimes we're not able for the big change all at once, so sometimes the Lord will graciously and mercifully take us through a process And little by little, kind of take down one brick at a time of maybe some wall that we have up in our life or some perspective. And he he doesn't just sort of open up the fire hydrant on us, even with truth sometimes to change our heart or change our perspective. We do that as human beings sometimes. I'm going to speak the truth in love. And instead of graciously giving someone little sips of water and kind of giving them the truth, we just open the fire hydrant on somebody. And then we're wondering why they're blown away and they're running away. Why don't you want to hear what I have to say? Well, because you're acting like a fire hydrant and they can't swallow what you're trying to say. And so here the Lord just graciously, it seems, kind of working in Peter's heart. Interesting, he's already stretching a little bit. He's staying with someone he wouldn't normally stay with. And now verse one of chapter 10 says, there was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion who was was called the italian regiment a devout man and one who feared god with all his household who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to god always so we now come to this part of our story where we're introduced to this roman officer cornelius cornelius Dwelling, it says, in the area of Caesarea. Now, there were multiple Caesareas in that area of the time. This would be Caesarea by the sea. It's not Caesarea Philippi. So, this is an area, Caesarea, Caesarea Maritima, which was basically a location about 30 miles away or so from where Peter is in Joppa. It's on the Mediterranean coast. It was a place very modern in its architecture, and it was built by Herod the Great, out of honor and respect for Caesar Augustus, thus the name Caesarea It was very Roman in its culture and practices, and it actually became the the Roman headquarters of the area of Judea. It was a center of Roman administrative power, and many of Herod's building projects happened there aqueducts and amphitheaters and the Hippodrome. And it was sort of a Roman base of operations. A lot of Roman governing happened from there. A lot of the Roman officials had their residences there. It was a base of Roman military operation. And so it makes sense that there in Caesarea, we meet this man, an officer, who it says was a centurion among the Italian regiment. Now, in the Roman military, a regiment, or the actual word there is cohort, what's being described, was a cohort was 600 soldiers. There were legions, there were cohorts, so a cohort was 600 soldiers. This man, it says, was a centurion. A centurion, where we get our word century or hundred, A centurion was basically a company commander of a hundred soldiers. And the centurions, who were company commanders of a hundred soldiers, they were basically the backbone to the Roman forces. Uh, These were like today what we might think of, for example, like battle-hardened sergeants company commanders who had a hundred men under their command. It took many years to be uh, promoted to the place of being a centurion. You had to prove yourself. But centurions historically were known to be men of great bravery, of incredible discipline and character and strong leaders. They were wise in their dealings. They were individuals who were known to be committed, battle-hardened men who could lead well, and they would hold their ground under pressure and would not give up territory and so they were assigned to groups of a hundred soldiers under their charge they were loyal and honorable men it's interesting when you read the new testament even the gospels and other places whenever the new testament speaks of centurions these commanders over a hundred soldiers they're always spoken of in the new testament in a favorable light and i find that interesting It's almost like God says, as he does in Romans, that we should give honor where honor is due. And it's interesting, these military-occupied men in the armed forces, they were always spoken of by the Holy Spirit in an honorable way. There was no derogatory attitude, no disrespect of what they were doing. They were honored. They were held in high esteem. They were seen as people of noble character, who were willing to defend and fight and risk their lives and do things for the benefit of the people, the nation that they were a part of. And so this military officer now, this centurion, Cornelius, notice he wasn't just well-known in that sense, but I mean, look, look at this man's many favorable and admirable traits. It says in verse 2 that he was also a devout man. That is, he was very devoted. He was someone who was very committed and particularly in his moral and spiritual character. He was a devout man who feared God. So he was someone who had a great reverence for God. He seems to be sort of uh, disenfranchised with the idol pagan worship of the Romans. And he begins to become aware of the God of Israel and he starts to have a reverence. He fears God. He's respectable towards Yahweh God. But notice not just that. Look, he's also a great leader in his home. It says he feared God with all of his household. So he was someone who didn't just fear God himself. He he led his family in such a way that the family would have a fear and a respect for God, that the family would give honor to God in their lives. It says as well that he was a very generous man. Look what it says. He says he gave alms generously. So he's a very charitable man centurions made a good pay some believe up to multiple times higher than just roman soldiers so he he has excess resources but he was a very giving individual he had an open hand he gave charity and generously was a giving man to the people and it says verse two that he prayed to god always so he had a consistent prayer life he was someone who prayed on a regular basis now considering that kind of character and the lifestyle of cornelius one would look at verse two and think that guy's okay with god man he's in right relationship with god i mean i don't know about you i'm just going to be very frank here i look at verse two a devout man who fears god with all of his household he gives generously and he prays always that guy puts a lot of christians to shame And he's not even a Christian yet. Genuinely, biblically, he's not yet born again. He's what would be called in that day a God-fearer as a Gentile. He does not have light and illumination about the gospel of Jesus Christ and that Jesus is the Messiah and how to be saved. That is what this chapter is going to show that he ultimately comes to discover as God reveals to him the way of salvation through Jesus. And by the end of the chapter, he will be born again. The spirit of God will work in his life and as one who's searching, God will give him further revelation and he'll come to know Jesus in a personal way. But at this point, he's just a very moral, religious, God-fearing man. You might fairly say, look, this man was a good man. I mean, how could you look? I mean, he's serving in the military. He's, he's a, you know, a, a company commander devoted to his troops, faithful to his military service. And then all the other, I and mean, that's a good man. But look, being good is not sufficient to enter heaven. Being a good man or a good woman is still not enough from God's standard because we still all fall short. And being good, being religious, being a God-fearer is still not enough biblically to have access into eternal life because we all still sin and fail and we all still need the forgiveness Of Jesus and the righteousness of Jesus to be acceptable to God Cornelius is one of the greatest examples of Ephesians chapter 2 that we are saved by grace through faith that not of ourselves it is a gift of God not of works if it was of works Cornelius should be first in line to get into heaven because that's a good man but he he contradicts the mentality which exists in a lot of our world and our culture and in many religious circles and I hate to say maybe even many churches that somebody well I mean that guy's sincere he fears God he he prays he gives to the church more than anybody else does and he fears God he lives a moral life he brings his family to the church every Sunday he deserves to go to heaven no he doesn't nobody deserves to go to heaven (laughs) that's the problem we have to realize we don't deserve and only jesus can give us access into heaven because if people like that could deserve to go to heaven then jesus came in vain why would jesus have to come if you could just hold cornelius's standard and get into heaven so he's one of the greatest examples of this reality a good man but interesting as he's praying what's he praying about it seems from Acts chapter 11 he's praying for further light He wants clarity, he's seeking God, he's searching, he's a God-fearer. Verse 3 says, about the ninth hour of the day, which would be around 3 p.m., he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius, and when he observed him, interesting, this tough military man sees an angel, he was afraid and said, what is it, Lord? Notice a small L. He sees this as a divine being, an angel. So he said to him, your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. So take notice, God knew this man by name. That's encouraging. God also knows everything about this man's life and what he's doing. God sees his spiritual condition, and God even says to him through this angelic messenger a word of encouragement, hey, Cornelius, heaven wants you to know. Your prayers and your alms, your giving, it's come up as a memorial before God. It's come up as something that God is blessed with and that God wants to honor and reward you for doing. Now, can I just say this by way of application? If God knew and accepted the prayers and the giving of this man who's yet still in an unconverted state, how much more does God know and is he aware and will we reward the prayers and the giving? of those who are genuine followers of Jesus, who are in relationship with the Son, Jesus Christ. Don't think that God doesn't see your prayers. Don't think that God's not aware of the things you're asking and interceding, that God doesn't want to reward what you're... Don't think that the Lord doesn't see your giving. And the ways that you may be generous at times to help somebody out or give unto the Lord as an act of devotion towards him, the Lord sees, he's fully aware, and I believe God was aware that this man's heart was seeking to know God and seeking to know the truth. And so because of that, there begins to be now this indication God is going to honor his searching heart with greater light and revelation. Notice the connection there you see, the connection between prayer and revelation. It says that Cornelius is praying, we know from the chapter as a whole, and the Lord seeing him praying, it's in the midst of his praying that God comes now and gives him revelation. And God's going to give him vision. God gives him a vision of this angel. God gives him instruction and God is going to give him guidance. Look, time spent in prayer is time seeking God and the result is God reveals things. As we seek him in prayer, I don't feel like God's revealing anything to me. Are you praying? Are you seeking God in prayer? It was This man had a life of prayer and it was out of his time in prayer that God opened the windows of heaven and began to show him things, gives him more direction, more clarity that he needs for his life. He's wanting to know God and God is going to honor this in his life in a very beautiful way. It says in verse five, now the angel said to him, send men to Joppa, Send for Simon, whose surname is Peter, he's lodging there, he's told, with Simon a tanner, whose house is by the sea, and he, Cornelius, he's going to come and tell you what to do. So the angel now speaks to him, recognizing he's hungry for understanding and revelation, but notice he has to seek it out, he says, send for Simon sir named peter he's at the house of a man named simon the tanner there in joppa go seek him out pursue him and he'll tell you what to do next in your pursuit of god he'll tell you the answers you're longing for notice he's hungry for greater revelation but notice he must cooperate by pursuing and seeking out revelation from god god wants to reveal things but he also wants us to seek him for revelation Jeremiah 29 tells us that God says, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. This man was searching for clarity and it appears he wants to know what he needs to do further for greater and closer relationship with God. We know that because in Acts chapter 11, verse 14, it says that as Peter's recounting the story that Cornelius said I was told to search you out and that you might tell me what I need to do. And he adds to be saved. So this man is, this is what he's searching. He's praying, God, I I know you're real. Reveal yourself to me. I want more clarity. I want more light. And God honors that. God will always reward the person who seeks him with further revelation. If someone genuinely reaches out for God, God will reveal himself to them no matter where they're at in their understanding. Notice also he says, send for Simon, and he'll tell you what you must do. Now, that's interesting. One would look at that and think, well, wait a minute, you got an angel right there, Lord. Just have the angel. He's probably going to be more accurate than a human speaker who stumbles over his words. Just have the angel say, this is what you must do to be saved. Why wouldn't God just use the angel to proclaim the gospel message of salvation? Because God's plan, by his design, offers the privilege and responsibility to human beings to be the ones to convey the salvation message through Jesus Christ. Because angels don't experience personally redemption. Human beings do. And so God is entrusted with the privilege and the responsibility you and I as people who've experienced salvation, the privilege and role and responsibility to be the ones who proclaim it. So he says, you got to go send for Peter, a saved man. He'll come and he'll tell you what you must do. Verse 9 goes on to tell us, the next day as they then went, or excuse me, verse 7 tells us that when the angel spoke to him departed Cornelius then called his servants together and another devout soldier and he says he explained to them all those things and sent them off to Joppa and the next day verse 9 as they went on their journey and drew near to the city Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour so take notice here Peter goes up it says there in Joppa on the housetop to pray around the sixth hour which would indicate noon The ninth hour is 3 p.m., the sixth hour would be around lunchtime, noon. So, Peter here, he's waiting for them to prepare lunch and Peter goes up onto the rooftop to pray. Again, remember in that uh, you know area there, many of the rooftops were an extension of the living place in the home. They were flat roofs, and a lot of times they were patio areas where they would go up a little bit higher and so they could catch the breeze off of the ocean. So Peter goes up there, he's waiting, he's hanging out, he spends some time in prayer as they're preparing lunch. Uh, it's interesting, it says that as Peter's up there praying, he became... Hungry. That's never happened when you're praying. Distraction, right? Sometimes that happens when I'm teaching. You're getting hungry, saying, Where are we going for lunch? And when will he stop? (laughs) Then he became very hungry and wanted to eat. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance. The Greek term is ecstasy. The idea is into a a spiritual state of ecstasy that God took him into the realm of the spirit, is a reference to what's being described there. Take notice here's Peter, and God's going to use Peter. And what do we see about Peter again? He's a man of prayer. God uses those who are men and women of prayer, who spend time in prayer seeking God because they're after and interested in the heart of God. They're desirous to know God's will and God's ways. And so God sees Peter praying. And as he sees Peter praying, now God's going to begin to speak to Peter and include him into this process and use him as the one to bring the the salvation message to Cornelius so Peter's there interesting he's hungry and he's praying and watch now I I love how God uses supernatural and natural so often we think there's this big difference between what's natural in life and what's spiritual in life and in God's mind they all just intersect because God said he's hungry let me give him a food vision I just I love that God says he's sitting there his stomach's ground he's praying he's thinking about food anyway I might as well give him just a food vision He'll get it that way because it's what's on his mind. It says there he's very hungry. He's praying. And he saw, verse 11, as he's praying, heaven opened and an object like a great sheet, bound at four corners was possibly like maybe like a large sail or picture like a large picnic blanket coming down from heaven, descending to him to the earth. And in it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts and creeping things and birds of the air. The indication there is both clean and unclean animals, according to Jewish dietary restrictions. That's what's indicated there in the text. Both were on the sheet. And then a voice... Speaks to him from heaven, and you can tell it's Jesus. Should be red lettered in your Bible. If it's not, that's who's speaking. And Peter knew the voice of Jesus. He heard it many times. He then hears Jesus say to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. So he sees this sheet come down from heaven. As he's praying, the heavens opened. Well, that's a good encouragement to want to pray, isn't it? The Lord might open the heavens and show us something. And he sees this vision coming down this sheet and there are all these animals, according to Jewish dietary code, there's both clean and kosher animals acceptable to eat and those that were unkosher, unclean. Leviticus 11 gave dietary restrictions to the Jews as a part of the Old Testament law. And then Jesus shows this to Peter and then he says to Peter, rise, Peter, kill and eat. In other words, partake and partake of everything that's there. It's all equally acceptable. Now, what God is doing here is giving a picture, a vision we're going to see in the chapter of both Jew and Gentile all being acceptable to God through the same terms of faith in Jesus and that they can equally partake of the grace of God and the salvation of Jesus. And so God here is making this through a vision, something that Peter could relate to and understand. But he gives Peter this command to do something outside of Peter's normal thinking. Peter, who was a good Jewish boy and ate a kosher dietary restricted diet, Peter, get up and kill and eat anything you want. Now, this command would challenge Peter's thinking. So verse 14, Peter hearing this says, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. So Peter noticed, he knows the voice is the Lord. No question in Peter's mind, he knows who's speaking to him. He knows it's Jesus. He refers to him as Lord. But he says to Jesus, I hear what you're asking me to do but I ain't doing that. Not so, Lord, he says. I've never eaten anything out of Jewish dietary restriction. Lord, I'm not doing that. And he refuses to do what Jesus asks him to do at first. He says, not so, Lord. You know, it's interesting when you look at Peter's life, uh, Peter at times didn't like what the Lord revealed to him. In the gospel, same thing. Remember, Jesus started to talk about his suffering, that he was going to be arrested and then beaten and then crucified and and, and then ultimately put to death. And what did Peter say? Far be it from now, Lord. That is not happening on my watch. Stop this talking about going to the cross stuff. I don't like it. (laughs) That's not how I No, no, I'm going to keep you safe. And what's he doing? He's refusing what Jesus is saying as part of his plan. Here's Peter again. He just tended to be one of these personalities. And I love this because it encourages about how gracious and patient the Lord is. The Lord tells Peter something that he doesn't like to hear and his first response is, I don't like that. No. Aren't you glad the Lord just didn't say squash, I'm done with you. I mean, he, he could have, but, but he lets Peter wrestle it out. No, Lord, I'm not doing that. Now, there's an, look, there's an inconsistency. Not so, Lord. Those three words can't go together. You, you can say not so, Tony. You can say not so, bub. Not so, honey. But you can not say not so, Lord. If he's the Lord, and if he's your Lord over your life, we don't have the right to say not so to him. There's an inconsistency. If Jesus is Lord, he's Lord and ruler over all. And out of submission to him, we should never say no to him, whether we like what he tells us to do or not, whether it's easy for us or not, or comfortable for us or not. There's an inconsistency whenever we say no to the Lord. But, but we've all been there, right? We've all struggled with that. I'll give you a perfect example. Say sorry. Not so, Lord. No. Me? Yeah, go humble yourself. Could tell something's not right between us. And I just want to apologize for what... No, when they come to me, then then I'm willing to die. Not so, Lord. Wait a minute. If he's Lord, we we don't get the right to say that. But we've all struggled. in this. So Peter's struggling here. He says, Peter, you're struggling with this. Notice, this is something he's never done. He says, I've never eaten anything common or unclean. But let me just say before we move on, just because we've never done something before doesn't mean that we can't change. I've never done that before. And Jesus says, I don't care. Now you will. <laughs> I have no, I don't do that. That's not, just because you've never done it doesn't mean you can't change if Jesus wants you to change. So Jesus responds to him and says to him, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. And this was done three times and the object was taken up into heaven Again, so due to the work of Jesus fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law, the Bible teaches us Christ fulfilled the demands of the law, we're no longer under the obligatory ceremonial part of the law, it's not enforced, so these dietary restrictions would now be lifted and removed in that sense But here, in a greater way, what God is just revealing by saying, I've made all things now common and and all things now clean and acceptable. Again, this vision is just a way of revealing to Peter that God was now going to make all people, Jew and Gentile, equally acceptable in God's sight through the blood of Christ, through righteousness that comes through Jesus. There would be no distinction. There was a change and a transition was happening. A new thing was coming to pass, and Peter had to be willing to accept it. Peter, if I'm changing things, you need to accept it. Peter, if I'm saying that this is okay as my plan is unfolding, then you need to accept it. And look, by way of application for us, if God says something is okay, then we need to accept what God's decided. If God says something is to be a certain way, because sometimes, I know this is a newsflash, sometimes my perspective is wrong. Sometimes your viewpoint is incorrect. And sometimes that struggle comes from the fact that we don't see things the way God does and our perspective and viewpoint is not in alignment with God's. Maybe it's even towards certain people. And we really look down upon certain people or a certain person and God says, look, I'm not looking down on that person, so stop doing that. Your viewpoint is wrong. Your prejudice is you have bigotry in your heart. And God says, stop doing that. You don't have a right to judge that person. Sometimes maybe it's just some practice or thing that's a part of our life or maybe it's a religious tradition that we cling to. And we cling to some religious tradition that we've learned or observed and, and we say, well, you can't go outside of that. You have to, this, this no, this is, this is what's right. And God says, no, it's not. It's not biblical. It's what you learned, and you're clinging to it, and you've never done anything different. But God's saying, "Are you going to honor my authority and my word? Or are you going to honor a tradition that you learned religiously?" And this is a challenge for us sometimes. So three times this same, interesting, this same revelation and the same word from God. Peter again. Peter had to learn thing in threes. I, I appreciate that. Shows you again, God's patient. <laughs> And sometimes like us, when God's revealing things, he repetitiously does the same thing. You ever notice that? I, I'm embarrassed to tell you when the Lord leads me sometimes how many times he has to tell me before I, I, I finally just embrace it. It's almost like when the Lord wants me to do something about six months from now, he starts telling me today because he knows then I'll be six months and I'll be going, I think the Lord's speaking to me. I think he's, and, and it's like repetition, but I'm thankful that he's willing to do that. He takes us through a process. So three times, the same revelation, the same struggle. Now, while Peter wondered within himself, verse 17, what this vision which he had seen meant, he's trying to process, what what was that about? Behold, men who had been sent from Cornelius made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. So they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. So these men show up. They say, hey, is, is there a man named Peter here? While Peter thought about the vision, verse 19, the Spirit said to him, notice again, more revelation, the Holy Spirit speaking to him, saying, Peter, behold, three men are seeking you. God tells him what he's going to do before he does it. That helps, because then when the event unfolds circumstantially, God's told him in advance, he knows it's of the Lord. Arise, he says, go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. So he knew it would be a challenge for Peter. So he says, Peter, I'm telling you in advance, I sent these men to you. So don't let your mind make you doubt. Believe. Believe this is of me. Believe I'm the one orchestrating this. Accept it. Go doubting nothing. He's saying, I'm doing this, Peter. So Peter went down to the men who had been sent from Cornelius and said, Yes, I am he who you seek. For what reason have you come? What are you looking for? What can I do for you? And they said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house to hear words from you. So then Peter invited them in and lodged them. Again, understand that. He just now took in Gentile people, shows you his heart's opening, He's becoming more flexible in grace and the more you go on grace, guess what you do? You become less rigid. You become less legalistic. Your perspectives of what's holy and not holy start to change. Now, if you're one of those people who just looks at the way somebody dresses or you know, or, or, or I'll give you one, here's, here's, a, here's a modern example. I can't believe that gal over there is holding her phone up and studying a paper Bible. Oh, that's just using your cell phone for a Bible study? I mean, that's so unspiritual. Where's your paper Bible, right? Where's that in the Bible? At least they're in church. At least they got a Bible. I mean, we just, but the more you grow in grace, the more you start realizing like God's going to loosen up, it's hard issues, God's coming. So Peter here, he's now taking Gentiles into his home, lodging with them, those who accompany. him. Verse 24, let's finish up our text. And following the following day, they then entered to Caesarea, and Cornelius was waiting for them. So Peter journeys with them this 30 miles, called together to his relatives And close friends. So Cornelius brings his whole family together and his friends because this man Peter is going to come and tell them words from God. And as Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter lifted him up. I love this, saying, Stand up, I myself am also a man. So as Cornelius, who's so hungry for divine revelation, is told, I'm going to send this man Peter to you. He's going to tell you the words of God you're searching and longing to hear. When Peter shows up, he is just so overwhelmed by the presence of of this man who's a messenger that's going to give him words from God. He just falls down at the feet of Peter and begins to kind of pay homage, almost a very Roman thing that he would do to show authority to someone who was, in his mind, superior to him. But I love what Peter does. Peter doesn't say, yeah, kiss the ring while you're there. He doesn't say that. Peter says, stand up. I'm just a man. I'm not divine. I'm not infallible. I'm just a human being like you. Peter deflects and corrects any self-worship that could be given to him. He completely deflects that here and will not allow it to happen. And, and to me, again, the exaltation of himself is more superior, important than other people or some sense of divine quality in his life. Peter refutes that. He says, stop that. Only God should be worshipped. Only Jesus should be worshipped. And he said to him, going on, as he talked with him, verse 28, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation. But God has shown me, Peter says, that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore, I came without objection. I don't know, Peter. There's a little bit of objection, I thought. (laughs) As soon as I was sent for, I asked them, for what reason have you sent me? Notice Peter indicates there in verse 28, he says, you know, and I know culturally, we don't normally do this. We're Jews and Gentiles, but he says, God has shown me. God has shown me, he says, verse 28, that I should not call any man, he's getting the picture now, common or unclean. I shouldn't look upon anybody as different. I love what Peter says there, God has shown me. What's Peter acknowledging? He's saying, at one time I wrestled with a certain perspective towards things, but God has shown me I was wrong. I was wrong. And Peter is openly admitting here, God changed his mind through revelation. God brought correction to his viewpoint. He says, God showed me the way I was looking at that, that I was wrong. And I love this. And can I say, sometimes that is what the Lord needs to do in our lives. Sometimes we need to be open when God reveals things to us. Sometimes we need to have enough humility and faith to say, you know what, I looked at it this way, or I looked at them that way, or I looked at this from this perspective, but God has shown me I was wrong. My perspective was wrong. My viewpoint was wrong. Peter says, So I came. And Cornelius said to him, as he asked, Why have you sent? Verse 30 Four days ago I was fasting until this hour. And at the ninth hour I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing, saying, Cornelius, Your prayer has been heard. Your alms are remembered in the sight of God. Send, therefore, to Joppa. Call Simon, whose surname is Peter. He's lodging at the house of Simon the Tanner. And when he comes, he will speak to you. Simon records, or recounts, excuse me, to Peter what happened on his end. He says, so I sent to you immediately, and you've done well to come. Now, therefore, we are all present before God to hear all things commanded you by God notice two things here one God was working on both ends God was working on Cornelius's end and working in Cornelius's life and God was working on Peter's end and in Peter's life and whenever God's unfolding a plan God's always working on both ends before he brings things where they connect with one another he's always working on both ends and you could trust him As God's working in your life and what he's going to do with your, God's always working on the other end too before things are brought together in the connection of God's plan. The thing I love as we transition into next week's study and Peter's message to them is Cornelius says, we're all here present before God, verse 33, to hear all things God, to hear all things commanded you by God. What a beautiful picture. They're there, what, longing to hear a word from God. And they say, We want to hear what's God telling you. Tell us what God is telling you to tell us. We want revelation from God. We want to hear God's word and hear God's voice. The hearts of the listeners were prepared and receptive. Listen, should someone like Peter, a preacher, a pastor, a teacher, be prepared to share and say, That which I receive from the Lord, I deliver unto you? Absolutely. But it is just as important that those who assemble and gather would have hearts that are receptive and expectant and ready and hungry to say, we want to hear from God. What does God want to say? We're open. We're ready to listen. That's just as important. And this beautiful picture of them all assembled there, they give Peter an open platform and say, tell us what God wants us to hear. Now, that's a dangerous thing to tell a pastor. And and that's why next week we'll finish Peter's sermon. Let's stand together. Father, we thank you for the word of God and Lord, for this section of scripture. Lord, lengthy, but certainly we thank you that there are,